Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. We've got a new episode for you today and we're excited that you made it here. Before we get going, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and then subscribe to the newsletter. Get some new updates from us, some exclusive content, things that nobody else has. And oh, one more thing. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And I'm um, Posh. And we have the pleasure today of sitting down with Paolo Pirjanian. He's the CEO and founder of Embodied, uh, which will let him explain you know, the, the new Moxie product that he's created uh, in depth. But Paolo, thanks so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So um, before we kind of get into what, you've, uh, what you're up to now, um, we love sort of t- going back to the early days and starting with the founder story and, and your beginning. So tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood and what kind of kid you were. Like, what were you, what were you into? Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I was uh, Armenian born in Iran. And from very early ages, I was actually very interested in um, science and technology. So every time I got uh, uh, asked for presents, I would want it like a microscope and chemical sets and stuff like that. My birthday cakes always had something with science <laughs> to do, like rockets going to the moon and all that. So <laughs> how I was, did that happen? Like why? Why? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. My dad was also technical, so maybe that inspired me. But I always found like science fiction movies very interesting and science fiction books and all that. Uh, so I was uh, always every time I got a toy as a gift in like for Christmas, within a day it would be completely dismantled, and I was trying to figure out how it works and uh, would try to put it back together. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much. Um, so I just I guess I was predisposed to liking technical things. Mm-hmm. And what did your well, you mentioned your dad was technical. What did he do? He was doing telecommunications which back then uh, was telefax machines mm-hmm. uh which was uh, yeah, very very archaic technology right. compared to telecommunications today. Yeah. How long were you in Iran? So I was there until I was 11 when the revolution happened in 1979, and immediately my dad said, this is a danger for Christian minorities as we are, and uh, sent me and my brother to England to go to a boarding school. Uh, so we were there for a couple of years. Um, so that was a, a little bit of a disruption in our schooling, and got to go learn a new language, go to a new culture, and so on. And when you say new language, you had to learn English, or right, yeah. right. We had to learn English uh, for a year before we could go back to to grade school. Um, and two years th- later, uh, my parents were actually planning to move to England as well. So they had sold their properties. My dad had transferred his job uh, that summer of eighty one. He said, uh, "Let's bring you back to." Iran for a couple of weeks. We say goodbye to all family members and then we travel, we leave Iran for good. And in that summer where we were back in Iran, uh, the war between Iraq and Iran broke out and they closed the borders because mm. they want to retain the youth. People that were like around 14 plus were not allowed to re- leave the country because they wanted to retain them to go mm. to war. So we got stuck in Iran. Oh, geez. But you weren't drafted, were you? Uh, no. Uh, so my brother, who is three years older than me, he was uh, about to be 
turn 18. And after you finish high school, that you would go be drafted. And they, with one month of training, they'll give you a gun and say, go to the front. Well, Regardless of a war? just that's No, the war was going on. Oh, oh during the wartime, that was yeah, how it was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so then my dad said, we got to get you out of uh, the country again. Uh, this time, we could not do it legally. So, um, And my dad is, was a very conservative guy. But uh, the fact that he took this action is, uh, speaks to... Uh, how desperate mm. uh, we were. So he found a group of smugglers, paid them a ton of money, and they smuggled us through the mountains to Turkey. Mm. And uh, if you know the history between Armenians and Turks, obviously, you mm. know Turkey was not the best choice, but it was the only choice. So in Turkey, we were then looking to find ways to get out of Turkey and eventually uh, found another group of smugglers, paid them a ton of money, and they uh, found a way to get us to go to Denmark, which was not a choice it was just again just get out of uh, the hole you're in right. and we ended up in denmark and uh became refugees in denmark so you were about what four, you said 14 years old at the time so i was 16 by that time my brother was 18 19 uh when we fled from iran and ended up in denmark and you told us that you were there about well earlier you told us you were in denmark for 15 years or so right right what was life like there? I mean, that's a good chunk of your life was spent in Denmark. So yeah. you know, it must have left some sort of impression, if not a lot of impressions on you. So oh, for talk sure. to us about that. It shaped a lot of uh, me. Uh, so well, well, when we first arrived in Denmark, we had to seek an asylum. They put you in a sort of refugee camp. Uh, we were there for about a year plus. They accepted my brother and rejected my case. So they were going to deport me back to Turkey. <laughs> Why? Um, Do you know? I don't know. I mean, the, I don't know what, what exactly was. We appealed it. Was it like a random? It was just random? It was not random, but I think there was some, maybe some different people reviewed my case. It was the same case for both my brother right. and I. And he got accepted. I was rejected. And then we appealed it. So a few months later, they gave me the asylum as well. So then you're officially able to stay in the country and mm. uh, start going to school and so on. So again, went to a college to learn Danish for about a year and then went back to grade school. So the funny thing is that when I left Iran, first time to go to England, I was in uh, what would be like seventh grade, went to England for two years, came back, went back to seventh grade, and there's technical reasons why I can tell you later. Uh, and then I was at uh, 10th grade, went to Denmark, was in refugee camp for a year, went to uh, learn Danish for a year, and went back to 10th grade. So I graduated high school at 21. <laughs> wow. Uh, so when I hear in our family or uh, community here, people like, we got to rush and we got to send our kids to the best school and they got to do this and they got to do that, I... I think that's so much hyped and putting so much pressure on kids. They'll be fine. They don't need to rush. I mean, you don't need to really rush. I was 21 when I finished high school. I was just beginning my schooling. And after that, I went to university and all that. So In Denmark. In Denmark. And before we get into that um, portion of your life, I'm curious, when you when you first went uh, landed in Denmark, were you able to even bring anything with you through, through this whole process? Or did you have did your family have to start from pretty much scratch? Yeah, so when, when we went to Denmark, uh, my brother and I, uh, we stayed there as refugees. Then my parents got in trouble in Iran because there were some neighbors that had point, that pointed out to the authorities that there are two boys that used to live here. They're not here anymore. Mm. 
So they started investigating my parents and understanding what's going on. Where are your kids? So they had to flee Iran as well. And then they came to Denmark eventually. Um, and yeah, I mean, my dad was a pretty high status uh, in his position in one of the biggest oil refineries in, in Iran. And he had to give all of that up and start from the bottom of the society at the age of, I guess he was late 40s or early 50s. Wow. What was that pressure like for them and then for you as well? I mean, seeing what they were going through and, um, you know, the situation that you were in and, you know, having lived a pretty good life and then basically having to really start all over. You know, what was that like? It, it turns everything upside down in your world, right? First of all, uh, you're away from your loved ones. It's a complete new environment, new culture, and also not necessarily... Uh, welcome to mm. be sort of seeking asylum or refuge becoming a refugee in our country because they see you as a burden to their society right our taxpayers have to pay for you to stay in that country so although i would just say danish people are the kindest uh people um so other i'm we're lucky we ended up there because in other countries there's even physical retaliation right. against foreigners coming and seeking right. asylum uh so I mean, we were young, my brother and I, and I even remember going through the mountains to Turkey that took eight days, and that's life and death. But there is something instinctive in us uh, that kicks in, and you're in survival mode, and you don't even think about it twice. Like, you're not scared, you're not afraid, you're just going through it. It's like, I got I to gotta make it to that next corner to know what's around the corner, right. and you just go with the flow and your instincts are heightened uh right and because you can't make a mistake a mistake can be very costly so uh which are by the way skills that are very useful in entrepreneurship yeah for sure i mean and i think that's why we both are trying to dig in on this portion of your life because i think it does play a big role in what comes after and you know the grit and the tenacity that you have to you know be able to be an entrepreneur you know, so 21 years old, you graduate high school. What's what's after? What's com What comes next? Uh, actually, one other thing that I think really shaped the direction of my life that's interesting is a couple of years before I uh, graduated high school is that at high school, I was actually, uh, in school, I was fortunate enough to be, things came easy to me. Uh, but I was a bit embarrassed to go to school because I was older than other kids and everyone wanted to investigate why are you, what have you, yeah. uh, have you flunked and f failed? Right, and yeah. I hadn't, but it's just the circumstances of life had brought me there. Right. So I was, I was ashamed to go to school with kids that were like a few years younger than me. And even when new teachers came to the class and saw this guy three years older than everyone else. <laughs> um, so I was, I was skipping school for a long time. Like, I would literally go to arcade because my parents, if they knew, they would get mad at me. So I would just leave the home in the morning, go to this arcade, play video games for seven, eight hours, and then go home. Hmm. Uh, until a point where the principal of our school brought me to her office and said, I want to have a conversation with you. You've had a lot of absence in class and so on. I want to understand why. Again, she was being actually super kind. Uh, and she said, I understand there's a cultural difference. You have traveled from a different country. There's cultural difference, the language and all these things and so on. And at the time, I actually thought I was being lazy. And that's what I told her. I said, actually, I don't think that's the case. I think I'm being lazy. And she said, in that case, I'm giving you a warning. If you, if you are absent one more time, we're going to 
expel you from the school. So that's how bad I was. Like my motivation was just zero. I did not want to go to school. Um, and then one summer uh, before the last year of uh, high school, uh, I had saved some money to go to Spain for one week of vacation, which was only like a few hundred dollars. Back then was a lot of money to me. Uh, and like a week before our flight, the uh, um, Spanish embassy changed the rules for people that held passport that I had, which was a foreign passport. It was not a Danish passport. I was still not a citizen in Denmark. So I had this foreign status passport. And I said, they have just changed the rules. You got to get a visa to be there. So I called the embassy. They said, there's no way we can issue a visa within a week. So you better cancel your flight. So the travel agency was kind enough to refund me the entire amount and now I'm sitting with this walking around the city with this money in my pocket which was a lot of money for me I said I know if I don't do something smart with this I'm just gonna go party with friends and go to clubs and all these things and just blow it in a week and then I said what should I do and I started remembering there's two two of the smartest kids in my high school class they always exchanged programs with each other and I said what is this so yeah I wrote a program to do this and that for Commodore 64 I didn't even know what a computer was back then. Oh, you mean like software, like it was a software program, like on a yeah. floppy disk or something? Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They would exchange floppy. Actually, it was cassette drives back then, mm. not even floppy. <laughs> and Commodore 64 was one of the most popular, affordable. Uh, was it called Commodore 64? Yeah, Commodore 64. Commodore. Yeah. And uh, I remember this, they, they were exchanging, and I, I knew they were the smartest kids in the class, so I always listened to them and so on. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go buy a computer. And all I knew about a computer was that it was called a computer. That's literally all I knew about it. Yeah. Right? I had no idea what it does, how it does it, and so on. So I went to a store um, and looked in the, in the window, and there was Commodore 64, but it cost $500. I said, shit, I can't really afford that. Yeah. So and as I walked to like a second grade uh, electronics shop, and I saw there was a different computer that looked completely different from the Commodore. Uh, and it was slashed from $600 to like $290. I could barely afford that. So I went, went in and asked, is this used? And they said, no, no, it's brand new. I said, okay, I'll take it. So I took it, brought it home. So I'm sitting there on the floor with this. I have no idea what to do. Literally, I didn't know that you have to connect it to a monitor to be able to start doing So I read the manuals. Oh, you got to connect it to the TV. I had to create a uh, cable uh, connector for it. I connect to the TV. I see this prompt thing blinking on the screen. And then that summer, I literally did not leave my room. I just started coding and learning more and more to code and so on. And that what were you What were you coding? Like what was the, what was like the, the like, what I was coding? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I was just playing around with coding and co sort of, there were magazines, the internet didn't exist back then in this level. So you could not go online and learn. You, so right. I found a magazine and there were some code examples there. I typed them in and Blindly, like I didn't really understand it. And then that allowed me to keep understanding more and more. And then I started improvising. And actually, funny enough, the first thing I coded was uh, a word processor that with the Armenian alphabet. Hmm, interesting. That's the first thing I coded. And the reason I did yeah. that, the mission was the following. Uh, there weren't that many Armenians in Denmark back then. Uh, my brother and I were the only ones. And then we met this other Armenian that lived like... Uh, in the closest city was about 120 miles away. And the three of us formed an Armenian society. 
<laughs> and then we wanted to have a magazine, uh, a yeah. newsletter. So, and in order to do that, we needed to be able to like a digital magazine. Uh, it was actually print. Still. Oh, like a print, yeah. But we had to print it. But we had to type it in on a computer. So I wrote this word processor uh, with Armenian alphabet. So we could we wrote. It was called Horizon, the name of the newsletter. Mm-hmm. So we would print Horizon every few months or so. And who would you distribute it to? Uh, we started finding a few more Armenians, like in the whole nation, yeah. maybe about a, a, 50 Armenians. Wow. And then we also found like uh, other Danes that were somehow connected to Armenians somehow. And right. uh, we start sort of nurturing this uh, community. And then the next thing I actually did was actually start developing... Um, uh, yeah, so the word processor, I, then I start adding more features and functionality to it. Uh, and then um, there was this magazine, which was like Craigslist, but it was like in print. Uh, every Sunday, you would get this thick bundle of... Uh, like a classified... Exactly, thing, classified. Yeah. Very similar to Craigslist, but in print, where you could buy stuff, sell stuff, and so on. And I bought a couple of books about my computer on that thing. And then I listed my software on that thing. And I started getting calls. People start ordering my, my software. So I started selling it to them. Um, and super naive about it. So I started selling it to them. And then shortly thereafter, after like 10 copies were sold, I started getting complaints. People would call me and complaining about customer support and this yeah. bug in the software and all this. Thing. So I realized, oh, my God, it's much more complicated than I thought. Now I have to support all these yeah. guys. <laughs> so <laughs> And you're like I, 19 years old. Yeah, yeah, I think 18, 19, 18, 19, something like that. So then I refunded them and I said, I'm withdrawing my software from distribution. Uh, so yeah, that was, so what that's was, how I got into computing, basically. And what was like the ecosystem of like computers at the time? Like, w- was like Microsoft and Apple even in the, like, were they even like that big or was it li- Linux? Like, what was the, I, I, I don't even, I'm not even too sure. So, right. So, back then, so as I mentioned, Commodore 64 was very popular, affordable. I think the first PCs were coming out with IBM and they had DOS OS. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, we start getting the first Windows operating system. Right. Uh, and then came the Macintosh and so on. So, it was very early days of computing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um, you, going back to, you know, you graduated high school and you were 21 years old and you, I guess, I'm assuming, you know, you ended up going enough classes so you can graduate. Um, what happens next? Like, did you immediately go to college and did you know what you wanted to study or were you still trying to figure it out? Yeah. As soon as I got that computer that summer, when I got into coding, I knew I want to go and get a computer science degree. So actually my last year of high school, I got so super motivated that I graduated at the top of our school uh, with the highest grade. Uh, and that allowed me, because I wanted to get into university, I needed to set certain, uh, meet certain standards of grades to get there. So I got in to the university, went into computer engineering, um, which was a combination of both the computing hardware and the software side of things. And then I, as I was finishing my master's degree, uh, one of the professors uh, in the robotics lab saw me and invited me to go do a PhD with him. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I wanted to start a company. And he said, well, you know, why don't you just think about it? And uh, after the summer, we can talk about it. And over the summer, I thought about it and I went to the PhD in robotics. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's 
basically how I, I just yeah. followed my curiosity to the next step. And um, so like you, you wanted to immediately after college start a company or, or, or were you even thinking about like going and getting a job in within computing or was it something that all along, like you were like, I'm going to start a company? I was considering both. I mean, there was attractive options to go take a job, but I also had a bunch of ideas I wanted to try on my own. Um, so I I had gotten a little bit of a taste of it when I sort of had my first soft software that I sold. Yeah. Uh, and I thought there was many opportunities there. Uh, so I wanted to pursue that. But again, the professor changed my mind and said, you, you should go and pursue this. You have the potential just to do a PhD in robotics. And I did that. Uh, How long was that program? Uh, so you, it, it varies. Uh, but I was able to do it in about three years. Oh. Uh, and one of, again, life circumstances. One of the reasons why I accelerated it, because like in the second year of my PhD program, uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and the prognosis didn't look great. Uh, so I accelerated to finish. I wanted him to see him me graduate before he passed away. And that's pretty much what happened. He saw me graduate and a few months later he passed away. Mm. What were some of the things that you took away from the robotics PhD program? I mean, were there things that you learned that I mean, you use to this day or even that inspired you to then go on and you know, start your own companies? Uh, one of the things I learned is robotics is super complex. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very multidisciplinary field, like anything you can imagine from biology to neuro neurology to mechanics to electronic software, anything you can throw at it because it's such a complex hard problem. Uh, so I learned a lot about complex systems and working on really hard problems. I did a lot of different things. I, I would basically live in the lab. I was, uh, my, my uh, parents thought I was on drugs because I was not sleeping. I was just in the lab bringing coffee and coding and fixing stuff uh, against the odds, by the way. At the time, the technology was just too early. It yeah. was hard to make. I, I was going to say, I feel like it's, it was probably one of the first robotics pro programs. Like It wasn't. No, robotics has been around for a long time, but it's really? been so challenging that yeah. uh, in the recent five to ten years, we have made a lot more progress than ever before. Mm. Right. So, so we were making things work, but I could barely... Uh, I had a robot that was... Uh, the size of a golf cart, maybe. Not mm. as tall, but the, the footprint yeah. was probably as big. And I was trying to get that robot to drive in the lab to just make it through the doorway to go to the next floor. And that was like groundbreaking work <laughs> right. uh, back then. Wow. Was, I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, like robots have been something that we talk a lot more about these this last decade. But back then, I mean, were there TV shows or movies or anything that really highlighted the you know the sexy nature of robots or even just like the robots are going to take over or whatever the storyline may be was it something that was starting to come up in culture and society oh yeah i mean uh, there have been movies on robots and sci-fi for a long time as long as i can remember even before my time the popular animated uh, show on tv was rosie the robot i don't know if you yeah, guys I the jetsons it. right yeah. mm -hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, robotics, uh, the notion of robotics has been around for hundreds of years. Mm. Actually, Da Vinci uh, was thinking about building robots. But back then, we did not have electronics, let alone software. It was all being done mechanically. Uh, 
So these were mechanical devices. Uh, but the notion of a robot, a machine that could become your slave and do your work is actually where the word uh, robot comes from. I think it comes from a Czech play where there was a, this slave servant character that was mechanical and it was called robot. That's where Got the word... It. I was going to ask, I mean, what is the meaning of robot? I mean, is there a scientific explanation to that or is it just what you just said? It is. It comes from that Czech play uh, hmm. with the character called robot, which was a servant, hmm. mechanical servant. Got it. After so, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, after going through this PhD program, did you want to just do um, work in robotics for like the rest of your career? Like, Was that something that you were dead set focused on, or, or was it like a part of a grander vision? Uh, no, I got really excited about robotics and the potential with robotics, although I, I understood very well that it's really, really early days in right. robotics. Uh, so I would say even today... Where we are in robotics today is uh, where we were with computing in the late 70s, early 80s. So like when, super early still. Super early. So Moxie, as an example, is comparable to the first Macintosh. Wow. Right? So, in, But what's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years, I believe, is going to be exponential advancement in these technologies. Like it's going to go really fast. Uh, yeah. So cool. you're basically yeah. the Steve Wozniak of robots right now. Uh, well, I'll call you that. You don't have to call yourself that. <laughs> okay. Um, no, so I want to get into all this, um, you know, uh, future talk, and and we will in a second. But before we do, let's kind of. So you um, graduated, and then did you end up starting a company right after your PhD program? Or no. So what happened is, in the meanwhile, I also get got married to my current wife, who is Armenian from Glendale, and uh, she moved with me to Denmark. Between my master's and PhD, I got married. And so she moved with me to Denmark to finish my PhD with a promise that we we're going to move over here. Mm -hmm. In the meanwhile, we had the difficulty with my dad's health and mm -hmm. all that. Uh, so after I finished my PhD, they offered me to become a professor there. Uh, and I just took that job while I was trying to figure out my balance of my life. What's going to happen? Are we going to stay here? Are we going to move? Um, and... Uh, then we decided to move and I wanted to have a place to land. So I actually got a postdoc position at USC, which is basically the, like after you finish your PhD, you can go to a, right. as a visiting uh, researcher, you can go to a university, continue your research. Mm -hmm. It's called a postdoc. So I, I did that at USC. Uh, in the meanwhile, I was there, I got recruited by JPL to work on the Mars rovers and Mars and Mars exploration and space was one of my childhood dreams. As I mentioned, when I, I remember, I have even photos when I was like five, six years old. I had like my birthday cake had rockets and um, planets. Exactly. So that that's what I wanted to do. So I went there, did that for a couple of years. And then I found the best opportunity to leave JPL to to go into entrepreneurship. Was it what you would have imagined it to be like as a, as a kid when you were working at JPL? So to be honest, it was great from a scientific point of view and the research and the people that I was working with. But the thing that didn't uh, work well for me was the red taping and politics. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. uh, I mean JPL is an amazing institution and they do world-changing stuff, but at the same time, there is all the red taping and politics and hierarchy and so on. 
And it turns out that I'm not very good at that. I like to be in an environment where I can make change very fast and uh, rather these big organizations move at a very slow speed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned after uh, JPL, uh, you left and what did you end up doing? So when I was at JPL, I got uh, contacted by Bill Gross of Idealab yeah. um, who wanted to start a robotics company in 2001. Um, and, uh, I talked to some of his people and, and then eventually talked to him and his dream was to become the Microsoft of robotics. And, uh, we discussed it and I explained that that is a bit of a oxymoron because there are no robots to be Microsoft of robotics <laughs> for at the time. But I found Bill super fascinating and he was obviously super successful entrepreneur already by then. Um, and I thought this is going to be a great opportunity for me to learn from him about entrepreneurship. So I left my uh, dream job at JPL to join uh, him to start a company uh, in robotics. And that's how I sort of forayed into, into entrepreneurship. Hmm. So what was the company that you started? Uh, so the company we started was called Evolution Robotics. Uh, and as I said, the, the business model was to develop software platform and license to third parties to let them develop robots. Uh, it was a uh, not the right business model for the time. Even today, I think that would be a too early of a business model. Um, and I was the CTO, the chief technology officer. And I was helping develop some amazing technologies. Uh, but the business side was gaining zero traction. So Idealab decided to shut down the company after $40 million of investment into that company. Uh, and I took the core technology and spun it out into a new company, carried the same name, but it was a complete new entity. In 2008, January, we formed Evolution Robotics, uh, new entity, same name. I, a handful of the team members I took with me, we didn't really have any funding, and we turned that company into... Uh, what we merged with iRobot four years later. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what was the new company? What were you guys doing? So we had uh, at Evolution Robotics 1.0, we had already developed uh, one of the world's leading uh, technologies for navigation, uh, which is basically one of the basic problems. You would think it's uh, not a hard problem, but it actually turns out to be a super hard problem for a robot to know where it is and how it goes from one location to the next location. So for instance, right. if you want to go to the kitchen, you already have walked through my house and have built a mental map and know the layout already. Right. right? That's yeah. not an easy thing to do. Right. And you already know exactly where you are, so you know how to go from here to go to the kitchen, exactly what turns you make and get there. So it turns out it's a very hard problem. At the time we started working on this, Carnegie Mellon University actually had done some breakthrough research on this where they were using a 40,000 laser rangefinder with a supercomputer to be able to tell whether what is in a hallway. We did that with a dollar camera and three dollar processor where we were using the camera images to build a map of the home and know the position of the robot within centimeter accuracy in your home. So it's sort of like you're trying to emulate like photographic memory for a robot. Yeah. And wow. photographic memory and also you can measure actually your position relative. Like sense of direction. Sense of direction and location completely, right? Hmm. So we had developed this technology um, and then when we spun out the company and start from scratch, we uh, developed that robot over there that's sitting in a corner. It's called the Mint Floor Cleaner. Uh, at the time, in the robotic space, the 
really only successful robotics company at the time was iRobot, who was doing robotic vacuum cleaners. That robot over there on the corner. So did they have the Roomba already? Their Roomba had been in the market for years. Okay. They launched it actually like in 2001 or two. This is 2008 where we are beginning to work on that one. And what we wanted to work on was like the next generation because Roomba, when it came out until very recently, was a random robot. So it's like it worked like a pool cleaner. It just like hits the wall and bounces off. Bounces off in random directions. And if you give it enough time, it will eventually cover everywhere. But uh, it's obviously not the most efficient way of doing things and nor do you guarantee that you'll cover every spot and all these things. Uh, so we wanted to use our navigation technology, which gave it a sense of location and direction to do what we would do as humans, clean this room, like one section, go to the next section, next section, clean all the corners and go to the next room. Uh, the other thing you notice with that robot is a square, it's not round. Right, so it could actually clean corners. Exactly, yeah. right? So And that required advanced technology to do that. So right. we did that, we launched the product. Uh, and within the first year, we did $25 million in revenue. This is after you were merged? Before. 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 And you're competing essentially with the Roomba? Well, so yes and no. I actually tried to accomplish a few things. One was I wanted to completely differentiate from Roomba. So this was for hard floor cleaning, sweeping and mopping hard floors yeah. uh, versus primarily carpets. It was square, not round. It was systematic, not random. And also it was complementary because if you're sort of positioning the company for potentially acquisition and so on, or even competition long-term, you want to differentiate yourself as much as possible. But we were, of course, in floor care. And we gained traction really quickly. We went from zero to about 7,000 retail stores representing us within a year. We did wow. $25 million in the first year. Uh, and then iRobot made an offer to acquire us. Uh, and the reason I took the offer is because back then, this is 2012, Raising money for robotics companies was very hard. The, the investor community didn't understand robotics, and nor were they interested. They just said, oh, it's hardware. We are not interested. So <clears throat> I thought that would be the best outcome to combine the companies and take our technology and bolster it on top of their business platform. Because from a brand perspective and market share perspective, iRobot had done a great job. They're the biggest brand in consumer floor care. Uh, and combining advanced technology with their product would give them even further leadership in the marketplace. And that's exactly what happened. We combined them, companies and the technologies, and yeah. And was it a merger or was it an acquisition? I mean, they, it's an acquisition yeah. structured as a merger. Got it. Whatever that means. It's yeah. more legal. Yeah, yeah. And then it. you ended up being the chief technology officer at iRobot. Right. How does that work? Like when you, uh, like, did they not have one before? Were they not focused on like having a technology tech department or was it? No, no, they did. They did. As a matter of fact, the first chief technology officer of iRobot was Rodney Brooks, who is a very well-known profile in robotics, um, MIT Media Lab professor in robotics. And he was one of the founders of iRobot too, mm. Rodney Brooks. But then after Rodney had gone back to academia or other ventures, uh, they hadn't really been able to find their footing in finding a uh, technology officer that could think strategically in furthering their cause. Um, and that's why when they acquired us, they asked me to be the CTO. Um, and I, I took the job. Um, and it was interesting. This was 2011? 
2012. Yeah, talk to us about that experience. I'm, I'm curious, like you, you mentioned being, you know, at a, uh, a GPL and sort of going through the, you know, hierarchical structure and that sort of red tape process. Was it similar at iRob- or iRobot since it wasn't like your company anymore? Or like, did you struggle with that at all? Uh, a little bit, although I had a lot of, uh, even a lot of freedom at iRobot because I reported directly to Colin and who's the CEO, the CEO, uh, he also believed in me enough to just say, go do what you need to do. Uh, and I was actually, uh, shaking up the company pretty bad. Most CEOs would have been scared of that, but yeah. he understood what I was doing. And what I, one thing I was doing is actually trying to ch- help change the culture of the company from being what I call a very waterfall, uh, so very top cons- down, uh, top down, yeah, and very conservative in the way they thought about how to do development of products and technology to becoming a lot more aggressive and agile, which is what you need to do if you want to keep growing as a company and moving into and that's the kind of environment i personally thrive in it's especially like, a high-tech company that is gonna at some point have competitors entering the market and now it's just a race to who can uh, ship faster exactly yeah. exactly and that's exactly why i was doing this and i remember i gave a all hands uh presentation to the company early on um and uh the first slide uh had logos of companies like Blockbuster, Kodak, uh, and a couple of other ones that do not exist anymore. And I say, remember these yeah. brands, and everyone recognizes those brands, and where are they now? Yeah. Uh, then I had a close-up picture of James Dyson, mm-hmm. and I said, this guy is coming after us. Yep. Yeah. And the only thing that can allow us to stay ahead of them is going to be innovate fast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and anyway, so we did. We we went and changed a lot of things. Got the our navigation technology into Roomba and so on, and helped the company integrate all these technologies. But at the end of the day, still, um, it was not moving as fast because they're a bigger company. They have more to lose, so they're being a bit more conservative than I would be, and so on. Uh, but it was a great experience, and I really enjoyed working with Colin and the team at iRobot. Uh, the other thing that happened when I was there is that I realized that since 2008, now we are 2015, almost a decade I've been working in robotic floor care, yeah, which is not what I wanted to do when I was aspiring to become a PhD <laughs> right. in robotics and so and on. And that's what I was going to ask you is I think one point we didn't touch upon was when you first started the company after you left JPL, what, why floor care? I mean, was it something you were passionate about? I mean, was it something that you just saw an opportunity in? I mean, like, were you just like, wow, my floors are really dirty. I got to clean that shit up. Or was it like, <laughs> right. you know, there's an opportunity there. No, I'm just actually, go after it. actually I'd, my uh, passion was trying to see if we can do something with healthcare, elderly care, mm. child care, and so on. Uh, but as I said, the environment for entrepreneurship in robotics until recently it has been very tough. I mean, very hard to raise money. And there are hard companies to build because the technology is hard. There is no market for it and all these things. And it so, takes a long time. And it takes a lot of development to even yeah. uh, move the needle on right. the s- smallest thing. So, and again, survival instincts, uh, entrepreneurship instincts, whatever you want to call it, I had to follow the money create something out of this work, right? We, I was passionate about the core technology, which was this navigation technology, 
which is foundational to robotics. Any robot that needs to move from point A to point B needs a technology like that. Right. But we had to find a business where we could generate revenues. Right. Um, and did you, did you own that patent for the navigational oh yeah. technology? You see some of them on the wall over there. I have like 50 patents in that wow. area. Yeah. Wow. So uh, now yeah. anybody that uses it has to license your technology. No, iRobot owns those patents now. Got it. That's part of the part of the <laughs> acquisition part of the deal. process. Part I'm of curious. The deal. You know, we talk about you know this sort of uh, phenomenon of being too early, and and but I think it's important because, as you mentioned, like you know, if it's there isn't a sustainable revenue model at the moment, that's like but that's like present day thinking. If you want to think ahead and think future and think innovation, how how do you like? Uh, justify that uh, where it's like, for example, is it like the you know Google X Lab where they're like just spending a lot of their revenue that they make from advertising into innovating, and and it, it takes like a big company that has the resources to do it, or do you think as a society like we need to do a better job of um, figuring out a, a way to you know even though there you know is it like a part of a bigger thing you know where there there is some revenue coming in and you can spend towards yeah. it you know. Uh, I mean, so from a societal point of view, you have government-funded research that's going on with NIH, NSF, uh, DARPA, and so on. Billions of dollars annually get spent in uh, supporting research. Universities have research labs that do research in these areas and so on. Companies obviously have to think about one thing, which is shareholder value. Mm. They have to think about how are we going to continue improving shareholder value and that's fine. That's what they do. Uh, and as part of the strategy of a company, if you're being short-sighted and happy to say, well, we already own 80% of the market. Why do we need to do any more research? Well, that's going to change very quickly. <laughs> because if you are that successful that you own 80% of a sizable enough market, there's a lot of targets on your back. And many other companies are going to try to find a better mousetrap to get at your market share. And they will eventually. Um, and uh, there are some companies that are really good at that strategic thinking of thinking not only about the current horizon, which is where we are, our cash cow is and where we are making money, but they look about the horizon two and horizon three, which are like moonshots, right? Mm -hmm. And Google X is a moonshot shop, mm -hmm. um, uh, and they do a great job of managing that. Uh, one of the companies I have a lot of respect for uh, in their ability to manage this really well, even at the size and scale they're at, is actually Amazon. Mm. And I think at the end of the day, it goes back to the culture of the team, how the team mindset works and how the team works together. Uh, and you can use counter examples where like high, big scale companies, but they're moving so slow and they will be disrupted sooner or later. They'll be disrupted or they mm -hmm. will have to acquire their way into innovation. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Go ahead. After you decide to leave iRobot, which was around, I think from my math, 2015. Yeah. 2015. Uh, what did you want to do? You know, I know you said that, that you wanted to, Early on, going to healthcare, elder care, you know, childcare, you know, the healthcare type, you know, situation, and obviously with the robotics angle. But did you immediately do that? Did you take a break? I mean, you had obviously reached a very good level of success and had built what you know great technologies, had all these patents. What was what was life like at that point? Well, I mean, my uh, cons what I had uh, thought I was going to do is take about a year off and. Uh, 
catch up with life and family while exploring and understanding what I think I want to do next. Uh, and that's not how it happened. So within the first month, I started actually a company that I should not have started. It was a, it was a fitness uh, well-being company. Uh, and I realized after a few months into it, I don't have any passion for it. But it would have been useful. It was a, like a, uh, the idea was to have a group of uh, fitness, uh, nutrition, and mindfulness experts that take care of your health. If you're an executive and busy and traveling all over the world, that the last thing you think about usually is your health. Unless you have your super discipline and wake up at five a.m. do your mm-hmm. workout and was it purely software or was it? It was it was a service, so yeah. it was going to be like a service where you sign up, subscribe to it, and it would. Uh, yeah, Moxie woke up. I think. Hey, Moxie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to Moxie in a bit. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, I, that was not right, and I also joined a board of a couple of companies uh, in the meanwhile. Uh, and then within six months, I started Embodied. Very cool. Yeah. Did you know what the purpose of Embodied was going to be? Yes, I definitely knew it, but I didn't know how we were going to pull it off because it was a complete moonshot. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I was really concerned about is a project like this in most of the companies we just mentioned in passing would have cost anywhere from a couple of hundred million to half a billion dollars to develop. Something like Moxie. Yeah. And obviously, you were not going to be able to raise that money? No. No way. I mean, uh, as a start... Seed funding. 200 million seed fund. Right. So, seed funding... Unless you're Quibi. I don't know if you're going to do that. Right. (laughs) I I mean, there are some companies like Magic Leap and those kind of uh, things that are able to raise that kind of money. That's not me, obviously. Not Uh, yet. Yeah. But even Elon Musk was not able to raise that kind of money. Elon Musk had to bet his own entire fortune to save Tesla to bring it to where it is now. Yeah. So uh, it was, it was, that was my worry because it was a moonshot. I was betting my career and my reputation in going and trying to do something like this. But I said, you know what, it's worth the uh, cause and we should go for it. It's probably going to fail, but let's give it a shot. So what was the mission? The mission was to use robotics to help enhance human performance. Uh, so instead of thinking about robots re- displacing jobs or, or replacing jobs. It was to be a assistive care technology that helps enhance you. So more of a tool that can help enhance your abilities. And the first area we actually looked at was elderly care and companionship for the elderly population. And later to add physical tasks where you can help elderly, for instance, that may have uh, challenges with mobility to get help them out of bed, help them to go to the bathroom, bring food for them and all that. Uh, but the first place we ended up spending is where we learned that we can have the most impact, which is helping children mm. with social emotional development. Right. How much money did it take to start? Or, I mean, what did that look like for you? Did, it, did you have to use up your savings or did you have to go raise a little bit of money, the team? I mean, what were you doing? What was there? Well, it's like? funny. When you start, no matter how much reputation you have and so on, you still have to start at humble beginnings and, <laughs> and yeah. persuade people uh, Investors to want to invest money in the company, uh, persuade team members to want to join you, and so on. Because you have nothing. You have a dream. Uh, and people, and this is a moonshot dream. It's not like it's a slam dunk. Oh, yeah, we can see. You can do this and that, and then you're done. It's like, how are you going to do that? This is not going to work. That's not going to work. Right. And all I had to say is, like, don't worry. We'll figure it out. Did, like, did you, were there any real-world examples that you, you were pointing to that, like, 
could sort of validate the idea or, or was this something where you were explaining it and people weren't really understanding because no, they understood it, but they didn't believe it could be done. Right. Um, so because it hadn't been done before. It hadn't been done successfully before. Yeah. Uh, and we are, we are not claiming success yet. I mean, we right, just of course. really announced the product and we will see how it goes. Uh, I do believe it will be super successful, but people understood the concept. They just, it was just too sci-fi for them. That is like a robot, like a, cartoon character interacting with you talking to you responding to you body language eye contact smiling at you and all that uh they it's a far-fetched thing and also given uh, the funding that they believed i could get which was a big constraint uh but going back to your question about uh, how did you start on the funding side so i was a bit lucky in the sense that uh, one, when you have had a track record successful exit with a robotics startup in the same domain, mm-hmm. so you, ha- you have a bit credibility. Uh, second, there was a couple of people that I'd met throughout my journey. Uh, so one of them was uh, Dimitri Grishin, who is the founder of Mail.ru, the equivalent of Google in Russia. Uh, he and I had been on a couple of panels and we hit it off. I really liked him and apparently he liked me to some extent. And he said, if you ever leave iRobot and you want to start a company, I want to invest in your company. Great. Uh, I'll never forget that. <laughs> right. Another person is, when I was at iRobot, I helped them uh, start the corporate venture arm at iRobot. And for that, we were searching to find someone to run it. And we ran into this young, bright gentleman called uh, John Lee, who at the time was at Osage University Partners, a venture capital firm in Philadelphia. And we were interviewing him, and he met with me, and uh, in the interview, I said, why would you want to do this? Like, you are in a venture capital firm, you're doing great, and all these things. Uh, so he and I kept in touch. Uh, after I left iRobot, they asked me to potentially help them with some venture capital deals and all that. So anyway, so those were my two first calls. Uh, John actually was in LA, and I brought him and did my pitch on my TV in my living room over here, and he said, we will invest. First meeting. And how much were you asking for? I, I was asking for, uh, I believe, like $3 million. And oh. at the time, was it just like, did you have some sort of visual component to embody? Like, was it Moxie or was it still super? So I had blurry? the concept of Moxie. Uh, uh, and I have a friend uh, who lives actually in Glendale and uh, artist, uh, engineer, uh, so I went to him and I said, Armin, uh, can you f- help me uh, CAD model this concept? And then I want to do a video uh, where we use CG combined with real shots and so on, where you sort of see this thing moving into the scene, interacting with a child. So we created that. That cost about $50,000. With most uh, agencies, it would have cost a million dollars. So mm. Armin is a genius. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a pitch deck. I'd done market research. I talked to a lot of families. Uh, I could see there's a lot of enthusiasm about a product like this. Um, both families who have children that are neurotypical and also children that may have neurodevelopmental challenges. But we saw strong signal. Uh, but it was still, it was a concept. We had not developed anything yet. It was just in on paper and. But did you have like an idea and were you able to explain clearly how it would be developed? Like exactly, you knew like what the steps were, everything pretty much. I mean, at least I conveyed it that way. But there are obviously a lot of... Well, you have to obviously convey it that way if you're asking for for money. But yeah, yeah. 
I'm curious, you know, I have a lot of my thoughts just like in the shower or just like daydreaming or whatever, but like, where did you come up with the idea for Moxie? I mean, like what, I mean, like what moment did you were like, oh yeah, there needs to be a robot for, you know, child development and, you know, social mental EQ skills or whatever. I mean, where did that come up from? The idea is not new. Actually, if you look at uh, uh, academia, there's many universities that have been doing research in this field for years. Uh, there's actually about 15,000 publications about this topic. Wow. Uh, and there's various universities from USC to MIT to uh, Yale, you name it. Pretty much any university that has robotics program is doing research in this field. Uh, the the idea is not new. And then you also have, of course, uh, sci-fi movies and so on. The idea has been there for a long time. Uh it's one thing to have an idea. It's uh, something completely different to actually figure out how to implement an idea. Yeah, Especially and I, and I guess that goes to my next question: was like, why do you think it um, like these massive uh, technology companies like Google or Apple or one of these people uh, hasn't started one or acquired some other company? Like, why has why hasn't it been a thing yet? Uh, I think this is too much of a moonshot, even for companies like Google uh, or other companies, but there are definitely companies that are doing research in this area. Uh, I mean, you could uh, think of Amazon Alexa or Amazon mm -hmm. Echo as a one step in that direction. Uh, so it's not hard to believe that a company like Amazon is working something uh, that will have animatronics and interactivity associated with it. Uh, as you know, Alexa Fund actually is an investor in us. Sony is an investor in us. Uh, Toyota, Toyota is an investor in us. And by the way, speaking of which, Sony is actually one of the companies in the, that were the first in the world that brought a companion robot to the world that was relatively successful. It was called the Sony Ibo Robotic Dog. They have just relaunched it, but the original launch about 15 years ago uh, was one of the most com successful companion robots. They sold a lot of them. It's, it's, a, it's a robotic pet Right, uh, mm -hmm. and it was very those. sophisticated by the way for its. I mean, yeah. it, it behaved like a dog. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, so it's been about what five years since you guys launched, or six years? Uh, it's uh, we started the company in 2016. 16, so four years. I mean, and you've raised funding beyond that first three million dollars, I assume. Yeah. So in the first three million, we actually end up raising four point two million dollars, um, and then we raised another twenty two million dollars in 2018 and recently we raised another uh 16 million dollars 16 yeah so what was that funding used for was it used for the development of moxie primarily market research and development of moxie i mean yeah moxie development has many aspects to it from the hardware to software to the neuroscience and all that yeah, so primarily and, that's been... Really and four years is like a pretty long time for like R&D and, and developing something for anything. So for you and like your team, like mentally, like was it like difficult? Like sometimes like at, at times to like, you know, you want this thing out. Like we talk about, you know, shipping quickly and shipping fast and getting cu customers to try it out. Like was it, a, was it a challenge for you? Absolutely. I mean, there's also, yeah. there's all this uh, valley of despair where you go to and you don't think you're going to get out of it. You don't think you can solve this problem. And there's hundreds of problems that we, we had to solve. And uh, yeah, you get discouraged. You've got to pick yourself up and say, uh, we will figure it out. Um, for sure. 
super challenging. And four years is a long time by, uh, especially if VC-backed, uh, standards of VC-backed startup. Right. But for robotics, not very long time. Uh, I mean, uh, as an example, uh, iRobot has been shipping Roombas for almost 20 years now. Wow. Uh, they just launched their next-gen Roomba, uh, which is all new technology, new form factor, much better cleaning capability and all these things. That project started in 2012. Wow. And iRobot, who is an expert in this and has unlimited resources compared to us, it took them five-plus years to take that product and create the next-generation version of it. So four years is almost a miracle in that Time scale, yeah. The the mind blowing thing for me with Moxie, and I think in a couple of minutes we'll you know we'll talk to Moxie as well, uh, and we'll record a video and we'll show it to our audience as well, so they could see what Moxie is all about. But you know, with the Roomba iRobot, you know, even with the technology that you had originally built with the navigation, you know, all that stuff. I'm sure it's complex, but then when you take it to the emotional intelligence, right? You take it to the level of literally human, where even some animals, other animals beyond humans, don't have that level of EQ or any EQ at all for that matter, Prefrontal cortex. So how, I mean, I I mean, I'm not a scientific mind at all, but how do you get a machine to become essentially humanized, to essentially have emotions and to be able to have that intelligence, both EQ and perhaps even, I'm sure there's elements of IQ in there as well, where they can interact and respond to the human being, right? To, to be a companion, you have to respond. You can't just be taking information in. It has to be a reciprocal relationship. So explain to us a little bit about that. Well, it's a, I, as you said, it's super complex and there is many, 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 many technologies that have to come together to make this possible. Uh, fortunately, we are at a point in, in uh, uh, technology uh, development that where things are more possible than this would have been impossible for even five. Like you have years robotics ago. and artificial intelligence and machine learning, like all converging together. In, yes, in and many disciplines within each of those. So, for instance, voice recognition. <clears throat> I remember uh, in our previous company, we tried to do something similar to Moxie. We could barely get the robot to understand one word. Well, wow. literally one word, like stop. I mean, you can you can relate to this. We all have had cars with in-car voice yeah. recognition technology, yeah. and you want to sort of tell it to go to this address. My experience is that by the time I have input the address, I'm at the destination. Yeah. It would that yeah. that hard to yeah. do it. Still difficult. Still difficult. But with Alexa-type devices and Google Home and that technology, the voice recognition problem has been pretty much solved. The next level is about a natural language understanding. Like, okay, so I transcribe your audio to a test text uh, string that says, here's what was said, but what does that mean? And that's what natural language understanding is to do, is to understand what you said and then figure out what is the right response to your, to your statement or question. That's just one part of it, right? And that's software-based, obviously. It's software. There is some hardware to it, too, because one of the challenges in conversation is uh, we are humans are really good at many things we, we don't give enough credit for because we don't think about it. It comes so naturally. We call it the cocktail party problem. If you're at a cocktail party, there's 100 conversations going around you, but you and I are locked into this conversation. We have created a channel which subsumes all the other conversations. We don't even really hear it. We hear right. buzzing in the background, right. but I can clearly hear you, you can clearly hear me, and we can uh, sort of focus on that. 
So for that, it's a combination of software and hardware problem mm-hmm. for us to solve that problem. Because in a home, you could have the TV running in the background. There could be another conversation with your parent and another child over there. And Moxie, if it starts responding to everything it hears, it's going to be schizophrenic. So we have to focus the attention on the child. Mm. Uh, so we combine that with face recognition, audio, direction of audio, where it's coming from, uh, with triangulation from four microphones and so on, and can focus the attention to that and ignore all the other conversation that's mm. going on. So as we speak, um, you know, Moxie isn't <laughs> isn't available to the general public just yet, um, but you're like sort of in the process of... of um, getting pre-orders and, and getting that going. What's the what's your vision for, for Moxie and, and what what do you hope that it accomplishes that you can look back and be like, you know, we did our job and, and more? So uh, there are two levels to this. For Moxie is our first product representing this new technology platform that allows for social interaction with machines. Mm-hmm. So let me talk about the social interaction, which we call Social X, is our technology platform. So Social Mm. X, I think, is a paradigm shift in the way we will interact with machines for the future. Mm. Up until now, we have had to use a bunch of different devices like keyboards and mouse and touchscreen and so on to interact with machines because machines don't understand us. We are going through a paradigm shift now where machines start interacting with us the way we interact with each other, using voice, body language, smiles and facial expressions, tone of voice and so on will is being understood. So that is a paradigm shift. It's going to make uh, change everything with respect to what we are doing with interacting with machines. If you call a call center now, the, the machine that's answering you would understand your tone of voice, would understand if you're frustrated and be more empathetic to your needs and yeah. so on. And that will help you a lot more. Right? Like I've seen the video of, uh, um, I think it was Sundar Pichai on stage the Google uh, Assistant or Google... The Google Duplex. Duplex, yeah. where they call and make an appointment for yeah. you. Oh, yeah. And that it's was a little bit too, too scary for the public, yeah. by the way. But yeah. that's happening, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we're that's the paradigm shift we're introducing. So if Apple Macintosh was a paradigm shift in interfaces for graphical user interface for computing, we are introducing the paradigm shift for interacting with computing overall, using mm-hmm. using social cues rather than mouse and touch and so on i mean embodied in moxie is obviously technology but at the same time do you also see it as a brand i mean i think that's how apple for example has become such a superior company is because as much as it is a technology company to the public right it's it's a brand apple is a brand they have products they sell products they're the technology is almost secondary right is that how you and the team plan to position embodied in moxie yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the end user uh, sh- should care less about the technology. Unless you're an early adopter and love technology, right. uh, they care. Le- they, they shouldn't care about the technology. The technology should be seamless. It's the experience and uh, benefit that, that the end user really cares about. And, right. and that's Moxie. So Moxie is the first incarnation of our social ex- platform and is to help uh, children with social-emotional development and for that product, this is our first product of many products to come, uh, where we have child development experts, psychologists, and neuroscientists that have helped us develop this product to help children with social and emotional development. So we, what would success mean if we can help shape the life of a child by teaching them skills that are going to be beneficial f- for the rest of their lives? And these are social emotional skills. They are not AI or, or sorry, uh, I, 
um, IQ type skills. They're not STEM type education, which is overly emphasized in our society, right? Yeah. From schooling and anything else you do, uh, STEM and IQ is overemphasized, but EQ skills are not emphasized as, mu- as much. Yeah. And in recent few years, actually, there's been many studies showing that EQ skills are as important, if not more important than IQ for your your happiness and even your success in professional life. But just to play devil's advocate, you know, as a kid, um, you know, you let's say you are someone who's a little bit of a like a loner like you you don't uh you don't have a lot of friends and and moxie can really help you know bring the you know bring out that development in you but at the end of the day it's a robot and maybe it doesn't like for example like a like another human being can betray you can uh talk behind your back and create these like these emotions in you that maybe adds to your development as well as a kid so when you grow up you're more aware of those things but you know if 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 for example a kid is only familiar with a moxie or a, a robot when they're younger and that's their best friend quote unquote like at some point when they get older do you think that that could affect the way they um they interact with actual human beings right no this is a very good question this is important uh discussion we do not see moxie as a replacement for human-to-human interaction. We see moxie as a uh, bridge for human-to-human re- interaction. Uh, it's a tool to allow parents to uh, teach their children some of these social uh, skills and in a safe, non-judgmental environment to give you the tools to be able to use them in the real world. The goal with moxie is not to help uh, improve the child's interaction with a robot. Right. That's useless. We want Moxie to be the springboard into the real world to allow the child to learn some techniques in a safe environment where they're not being judged and then go and practice it in the real world. Uh, as a matter of fact, Moxie will encourage the child to go do things in the real world and come back and report it. Mm. And why is that important? You're absolutely right. You want to have the nuances of interaction with humans, which mm-hmm. is super important. But if you have a child that's so withdrawn or maybe has gone through an experience where they do not want to interact with any other child, they're never going to get that experience. Mm-hmm. And Moxie is going to help them promote these skills and the courage it takes to take the skills and tool tool set. Say, why don't you go talk to someone and come and tell me about what you learned about whatever topic, right? And you're teaching them, giving right. them the skills. I mean, I can personally relate to this. As I mentioned, I've been uh, going through from country to country, and every country has different people judging you because your accent, your mm-hmm. color, the way you look, the way you are, and so on. And uh, if you if you are resilient enough and can just power through that and so on, great. If you can't and you get withdrawn and separated or isolated from the society, that's not so great because mm-hmm. you have one potential child that could be contributing to the society and now completely isolated and rejected from the society. That is not cool. And that's the kind of thing we want to do. Uh, and if you think about longer term, we, we talked about we originally wanted to do elderly uh, companionship for elderly, especially like now. My mm-hmm. mom herself, she's living alone. My mm-hmm. dad passed away years ago. She has no interaction. As a matter of fact, that reminds me, I got to go pick her up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that is uh, so. Yes, when you have the ability to socialize with other people, absolutely, we love doing that ourselves. Mm-hmm. When you don't use this as a as a tool to allow them, another analogy I'll use, 
and you may have experienced this yourself, when you're trying to teach your child to uh, ride a bike, you put training wheels on it, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you want them to learn, not hurt themselves, learn to get gain confidence that I can balance this thing myself and so on. You don't just say, oh, it's going to make you harder. You will fall down a few times. You may break your arm, but you will, you will be right. really good at biking. Give them training wheels. Let them learn how to balance and then gradually remove the training wheel. So this is more like a training wheel for teaching children those skills. And, and I totally understand. I love it. And just to continue off of playing a little bit of a devil's advocate, do you think that the technology that you know your team has created with Embodied and Moxie can be a slippery slope, meaning that eventually robots will be able to educate you. They'll be able to be your accountability partners. They'll be able to tell you what to do or how to do it and basically control you, right? I mean, and again, it might not be such a horrible thing if you're trying to be the best version of yourself or perfect or whatever, but it almost becomes like you become a robot, right? Where the robot trains you to be a robot. So how how have you dealt with that and what are the things that you can put in place to avoid that or I mean, maybe not avoid that? Well, I think it depends on... uh uh, whose hands uh, has access to this kind of technology. Really, I think technology is not evil. Uh, technology is meant to improve humanity and our experiences, and that's certainly our intent and focus. Um, but if it gets into the wrong hands, can it be abused to brainwash children and so on? Mm. Theoretically, yes. I mean, I would go back to Isaac Asimov, one of the best science fiction writers, especially in about robotics. What's his name? Isaac Asimov. Yep, uh, yep. He wrote the uh, the book I Robot, mm-hmm. uh, of which the company and the movie were named. Mm. Um, and Isaac Asimov wrote in his one of his books that when the human designed the knife, we put a handle on it because we didn't want anyone to hurt themselves. But at the same time, a third person can grab that handle, stab you with it. So the knife is not malicious. It's the intent behind the user of the knife that is malicious. And I think the same applies. I mean, all of this debate about robots taking over the world and so on, yes, uh, but it's not the robots doing it is us like i wonder at some point i don't know if there already is but there will, will there be like a commission or someone like regulating the technology or because I, I mean as as technologists as, as technologists we obviously don't like with you know cryptocurrency and like we're moving more towards decentralization but maybe maybe it's not like a like a like a physical commission of made up of humans but maybe it's like something where similar to how the blockchain works is like a, a collective effort amongst the people that yeah. are the users of it to make make, make sure that there's order I don't have personally much faith in that. See how uh, fake news worked with Facebook and uh, how they manipulated right. election. I mean, we are we have devices that are manipulating us big time mm-hmm. right now. Like as we speak. As we speak. Yeah. I mean, there are devices that are, again, is the social media evil? No. The way it's being used can be evil. Right. Uh, and the same goes for any other technology. So I know I you got to run. Go, yeah. yeah, I know you got to run. So let's, can we get a quick... Uh, uh, thing out of moxie just something uh something to Mo- moxie you want to join is that what you said cool <laughs> moxie the mic moxie wake up
Hello, Moxie. My name is Moxie. I'm a new robot. Oh, I don't know if we've met before. What's your name? My name is Paolo. Yeah, Autumn and Moxie. Moxie and Autumn, talking together. I'm a robot ambassador from the Global Robotics Laboratory. I'm here to learn how to be a good friend to humans from people like you. I wonder where Paolo is. I feel a little lost without him. I'm right here, Moxie. Paolo, hi. Are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. Of course. What are we going to do? Uh, what is your mission? I was built to learn how to become a good friend to humans from my mentor. That is my core purpose. What are your other purposes? I am a robot ambassador. I can play games, tell stories, and support positive social development in human children. Uh, can you show me your emotions? When I'm excited, this is how I sound. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Though, if you hurt my feelings, I can sound really upset. And I'm a curious robot, so I have lots of questions. Such as, how do you feel today? When is your birthday? Or, what is your favorite movie? What is your favorite movie? I haven't seen very many movies, but I like Star Wars. R2-D2 is one of my heroes. Why is that? Oh, I already said the star R2-D2. Uh, what do you think about cryptocurrency? Are you invested in Bitcoin? My friends at Skynet are quite bullish on it. Thank you, Moxie. You are so cool. I like you. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Moxie earmuffs. I agree. <laughs> Moxie earmuffs. Does that mean it can't hear you anymore? Yeah. So are you guys going to basically, like Tesla, just be developing like new software that constantly can be updated without even just... Yeah. So it's, uh, it's connected to Wi-Fi and you will continuously get OTA updates yeah. uh, that keep improving the uh, software, but also add more and more content. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do people access this eventually? Is there an app that parents can basically track their kids or I mean, how does it work? So there is a parent app, the robot, every time it interacts with children, it's tracking a bunch of uh, these developmental metrics, like your vocabulary, sentiment of the words you're saying, eye contact, how often are you making eye contact, many things. And that is provided through a dashboard to the parent. Uh, and the parent can keep track of how their child is developing. They can also set certain settings on the parent app, for instance, uh, transitions sometimes are hard for children, like first day of school, going to a doctor mm. or traveling or something like that. Parents can set those dates in the, in the app and Moxie knows those dates so it will start prompting and start preparing the child for those transitions. Got it. And are kids going to be, is there going to be like almost like an instruction manual for how to use Moxie? I mean, like what kinds of questions it can answer, how really how far the conversation can go? Uh, so when you get Moxie out of the box in the first week or two, it's actually going to do some activities, which are games. And through that game is teaching the child what to expect of Moxie. Got it. So through that interaction, you learn, like, for instance, 
we have this, some of these what we call global commands where you can ask it to not listen mm -hmm. by saying moxie earmuffs. Uh, so you, the, ro the robot will teach the child uh, through a game these commands. And so. Got it. Got it. Very cool. And for those listening who want to check out more about Moxie, where can they find it? So embodied.com or moxierobot.com would take you to that website. And awesome. when's the plan for actually getting this product out and into the hands of consumers? So next uh, month, we are actually shipping about 100 units to 100 families that applied for a uh, pioneer program, we call it. Um, and that's an opportunity for us to make sure everything is working perfectly fine. Uh, and the pre-orders that are being put in place right now, you can, order, you can actually reserve one for $50.00. Uh, you have to pay the full price of about fifteen hundred dollars when we before we ship, mm. and the shipment will happen in the fourth quarter of awesome. this year. Yeah, very cool. very cool, very awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank My you. Pleasure. know, awesome learning about your story and, and what you're doing uh, with Moxie, and we can't wait uh, to see where where everything ends up once you guys actually get this out into people's hands. And hopefully, we can do this again. You know, someday uh, soon once everything is out there and more developments happen. But uh, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. you Paolo. Thanks for having me. Of course, thank you.